Welcome to Field and Foley episode 11. Today our guest is Mariana Lopez, a Latin American researcher and sound designer based in the UK. With a focus on sound design and accessibility, Mariana's expertise extends to acoustical heritage, historical soundscapes and gender equality in audio. Her contributions to the field of sound design, including VR experiences, installations and films, showcase her artistic and technical prowess. I am thrilled to explore Mariana's journey and insights into the world of sound design and acoustical heritage. So uh, welcome, Mariana, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much. Yeah, so the, the first thing I'd uh, like to ask you, could you briefly explain the term acoustical heritage? Yes, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, my definition of it is that it is the study of uh, past cultures, but also current cultures as well and, and, and current societies in relation to the acoustics of their environments. And here we could consider um, natural environments, built environments, indoor environments, outdoor environments. And this generally, um, the studies tend to focus on acoustic measurements on site or the use of computer models to recreate sites that no longer exist or that have changed throughout history. Uh, but also a lot of the work I do is a combination of acoustic engineering techniques, audio techniques, with uh, considerations that come from the fields of sensory history and sensory anthropology. That sounds like a whole can of worms that I'd like to get <laughs> into because, uh, yeah, recreating recreating environments that are not like the same yeah. or not ex uh, existent how how do you go about doing that do you go like from from ancient texts and <laughs> try to <laughs> structure something like a 3d model or something and then make reflections out of there or what how can i imagine this yeah no that's a really good question i'll give you an example of a project i worked on to make it uh, a little bit uh, more tangible ironically mm -hmm. <laughs> um so i've uh, worked for a number of years on um, a cycle of medieval drama called the york mystery plays which are basically uh, a set of uh, medieval plays that were performed in the city of york in the uk from the 14th to the 16th centuries and the york mystery plays were performed outdoors in the streets of York. And uh, they were, each play was performed using a wagon that was pushed along the streets of York, followed a predetermined route and stopped at predetermined street spaces to perform for an audience. And that audience uh, could be standing audiences or watching for free, or it could be that audiences might have paid um, some money to have a seat in something like a scaffold. Mm. And um, when I was doing my PhD uh, and then after it also, I explored what the acoustic settings of this performance is where, because we know that listening uh, to what was being said was incredibly important to the productions and the, the text itself. And there's loads of cues in the text that um, the words listening was crucial and Pamela King has done a lot of work in this field. So what I did is I did acoustic measurements of the best preserved site of the mystery place that is a street called Stonegate in central York. And um, by acoustic measurements, I mean 
we took a loudspeaker to the street and we placed um, a dummy head, a binaural dummy head and um, an Amazonics mic. And what we basically do is we play a sign sweep through mm -hmm. the loudspeaker and we re-record it through the microphones. So what you end up is with a recording of the sign sweep in that space. And generally, although this depends on the space you're exploring, we do several recordings changing the position of the loudspeaker and the position of the microphones. Once we've done this recording, what we do is a process called deconvolution. So we separate the original signal, so the sign sweep, from the response of the space to that signal. And we end up with what we call an impulse response. And it doesn't sound very exciting, really, because it sounds a bit like a, sa like, like a hand clap. clap. But um, we can then take that impulse response, which will be one per each source receiver combination that you record it. And you can learn loads about the space. You can learn um, speech intelligibility in the space, depending on the position. You can learn how clear um, speech might have been again, but also how clear musical sounds mm -hmm. might mm -hmm. be. And things about listener envelopment and the, um, the apparent width of the sound source. So that's very exciting. Uh, but you can also listen to the space. So you can um, do a recording in an anechoic chamber, and then you can go and convolve it with that impulse response and hear that space. So that is mostly when the space exists and you can study it and measure it. Uh, in the case of the mystery place, of course, what I measured was the space as it is now. But um, as you may imagine, it has changed quite a lot since the 15th, 16th century. So um, what I de then did is I built a number of computer models. So these are acoustic models. So they, long, they don't look very pretty, um, but they sound great. <laughs> and um, what you generally do, this is what most people in acoustical heritage do, is they build a computer model of the space that they measured first. So exactly as it is when it was measured. And then what we generally do is we start changing the characteristics of the acoustic model to reflect what historical records tell us about that space. So, for example, in my um, in the case of this specific street used for medieval drama, I changed the pavement. So from from kind of a paved floor, um, kind of more irregular surfaces, but also looking into um, the characteristics of timber framed houses in the period. So what you do then is you, again, you create those impulse responses out of those computer modules. And the really exciting thing is that you can start exploring how the acoustic characteristics of the space changed as the space changed throughout history. Um, of course, we do make a lot of assumptions when we build the models. What I generally do is I build um, a number of models that reflect different possible scenarios because mm -hmm. it is often impossible to know exactly how a space uh, like an outdoor space for medieval drama was used because there is no particular records that give us enough information about its use. So we model loads of different uh, scenarios and we try to reflect on how those different acoustic settings might have had an impact on the performance. Yeah, that sounds like quite a lot of work, and um, I'm 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 aware of um, impulse responses and and convolution reverbs, and I'm actually uh, next week I'm going driving up to Denmark for um, for a work project, and on oh, the cool. way, I found out that there's this uh, really nice big oil tank where you can <laughs> oh I see yeah record is like an abandoned oil tank, um, so this will be my first. Uh, 
I would say like great, hopefully great impulse response uh, recording because I, I've played around a bit with it, but so far, um, yeah, I, I have just like used claps or uh, balloon okay. popping yeah. and a simple recorder. But this time I'll try to bring something more more involved and um, we'll see how that goes. But that brings me to the next question. So if you're recording some outside impulse responses, um, how can you get rid of all the traffic noises, airplane noises? Do you like set a date and time, maybe three in the morning or something <laughs> to get something very clean? Or yeah, how do you do that? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, yeah, recording post responses outdoors, as someone once told me, is probably one of the most difficult things that you can choose to do uh, <laughs> yes. in, in, in audio. Um, they told me that when I was already committed to it, so that, you know, <laughs> they should have told me before. Um, yes, it is very hard. Noise levels, you need to have a really good signal to noise ratio for impulse responses to work. Mm. And when you're working in, for example, in the city centre of York, that is a very popular, very touristic, it is a problem. And for example, when I explored that street, that is one of the most popular uh, streets in York. <laughs> um, so yes, we go very early. Um, it's it's worth if anybody's doing this work just just as a tip do check the regulations of the city mm -hmm. council or whatever space you're using because for example i remember when i did that these measurements were done quite a long time ago now um but we had to check the regulations of the city center and there is a rule somewhere that says you cannot place a loudspeaker on the street <laughs> before yeah. eight in the morning it's, it's quite interesting because it doesn't say you can't play sound you just can't put a loudspeaker yeah. on the street <laughs> so we couldn't start before eight in the morning um so what i did what i would I generally suggest is to explore the space in advance. You can go with an SPL meter and just check what is what is the trend of noise levels or background noise levels in that area. Mm. But there's different ways in which you can work with the signals to actually um, get a better signal to noise ratio. So uh, a tip for you is if you make the sign sweep longer, your signal to noise ratio is going to increase. So um, I think the signals in York City Centre in Stonegate were about 90 seconds, Ooh. which is, yeah, it's very long. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, most people use about 15 seconds, so 90 is quite a lot, but it allows you to get a better signal to noise ratio, and there's quite a lot of research done on this. Uh, so that's what I did. Uh, but. The added problem is that you have to sit really still for 90 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if, if you're like me, you know, it's, it's almost an impossible task, really. Um, but yeah, that's what, what we do. But, you know, there's always noise challenges with impulse responses. I worked on a project uh, led by Dr. Lydia Alvarez Morales and Lydia Research Cathedrals in the UK. And although these are closed spaces, we um, we had to be very um, careful about noise levels coming from outside of the building. Mm. Um, and I remember once we had a really windy, windy night um, and, and we do them. We do those measurements when that space is, is close to the public. Yeah. But, you know, even those external noises from outside of the building is something that you have to, to, to keep. Um, I was going to say an eye out for, but maybe an ear out for. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Like checking checking the weather report is also be, uh, becoming a part of my routine. I and imagine. I, yeah. I can also like relate to the having to sit still for ninety seconds. Um, <laughs> um, but I actually found out that it's at least for me it's a, it's a good way of of learning to do that and to to yeah. have 
almost the, those like mini meditations throughout the day because when yeah. I go out recording and I have something very interesting, but I have to hold my microphone in a certain way because <laughs> it's like over the water or something and I can't like put anything in there. I have this awkward pose and then I just try to, yeah, go into my mind and uh, <laughs> meditate while recording and don't make any handling noises. Um, so yeah, that's, <laughs> that's definitely the pain of working in audio. Um, it's easier to make photographs than because you can at least sneeze or something. <laughs> But that's yeah, that's very interesting. I didn't know that um, that you you used those long sweeps. Um, but it's I, I mean it it totally makes sense um, to have a, a better signal to noise ratio that way. Very interesting information. Um, so then for spaces where there isn't anything existing anymore, where you don't have like a street, maybe it's like an old building that's that's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Do you all do that with? I would I would guess like with with models trying to recreate it uh, somewhere virtually to get the structure there and um, yeah and the materials or what's your process there yeah absolutely you use specialized software that is for acoustic modeling and uh, you yeah you basically program the um, that's how, how I do it different people do it uh, differently mm -hmm. but how I've done it is literally yes enter the data on the space to that program directly and you create the model of the structure but as you say you also assign characteristics to the surfaces so you need to tell the system what is the absorption coefficient and the scattering coefficient of each material uh, this can be quite tricky in historical <laughs> research yeah. because we might actually not know and that's why we go through uh, a calibration process. So what I was saying before that you build first a model of the space that you measured exactly as you measured it, that allows you to test the model. So what we do is we will change the characteristics of those uh, that data that we entered until it matches reality um, as um, close as possible. So we will check things like TR, so a, a measure of reverberation time, and we compare the reality with a virtual model. Mm -hmm. So that is a really important process um, because you need to know that your tools are doing the job before, <laughs> course, I, yeah. before you start making, making claims about the past. You, you do need to make sure that you covered all your, your possible uh, challenging moments. It is quite a laborious process, as you say, uh, and sometimes you have to kind of modify the model several times until you get it right. But yes, as I said before, there is uh, there is an amount of, of kind of choices that a researcher does when choosing, uh, for example, absorption coefficients for a historical model. I see. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine like that must be very hard. Um, I know that from, I think, like some history documentation or something where they try to find out, okay, how did they make the bricks? Um, yeah, how <laughs> dense were they and stuff like that. that that's something, yeah, as you said, I, we don't have that information because, um, yeah. I mean, even nowadays, I, I would say if you buy like an old house, um, maybe even from the 70s, there's a, a high chance that you don't know exactly what's on the walls and what kind of structure you have. Yeah, that's, because, that's yeah, a good point. Yeah, yeah those, all those documents are probably lost somewhere and uh, yeah not many people care i mean you could at least <laughs> record the space but still like um we have a very old house like the the bottom floor is from the 1600s okay. and the first floor is from the 1900s and so the top floor is from the 90s so we have like three different areas of age <laughs> in our house which is interesting and you can see the different styles and the different um we have like sandstone in the bottom like very oh, very wow. thick walls and um, yeah, and then the, the red bricks uh, up top. Um, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's also interesting that the acoustic properties are, of course, different. Yeah, if, if I need to record something very silent, 
I ask my mother-in-law to, to use her like bathroom or something else because it's <laughs> those thick walls, it's very shielded from everything else. Yeah, um, yeah this is... Um, this is this is really interesting that is that so many yeah thoughts go into into recreating uh, acoustical spaces so um yeah what other things are you do you have to consider when you're designing sound for for like those historical soundscapes i mean it's not just the reverberations because mm -hmm. i mean this is probably a big part of it because the room is like the feeling of the place yeah. but i mean also for the sound maybe even for the music or something like that um is there like an instrument maker that builds instruments from that time period to record them, them or yeah yeah i mean most of my work is is really a combination of these more technical aspects but but to me really another key consideration is uh, understanding that sensorial experiences are um context specific and they're they're culturally determined and i think we see very little awareness of this in the audio world or the more technical side of the audio world and mm -hmm. to me actually that is really important is understanding that we don't hear the same way than people did for example in medieval times we can never truly recreate that experience we can only try to do our best job to use the historical records to try to see how certain sonic experiences might have might have come together, but we hear in relation to our own uh, context, and that is determined by you know the community we live in, but loads of different characteristics, including you know what we have access to and what we don't have access to, and um, that is the really important part of my work that explores goes beyond just acoustic measurements, but really explores those findings in relation to sensory history but also sensory anthropology um, and I definitely would like to see more of that in acoustical work in historical acoustical work I a lot of what I do in my work is as well try to find creative ways to express that ambivalence so I'm very much into transparency of presentation of results so what I've um, done in the past to show this unknowns about spaces and this different sonic experiences is built an online interface called the soundscapes of the york mystery place and what you can do in that interface is create your own soundscape from the past but everything is based on really thorough research but you can listen to what the change is if a performance setting was in this way or in this other way if someone was sitting here or they were sitting in this other place mm. and this was very important for me because i wanted to show that i didn't know what the medieval drama of the mystery play sounded like i can only present possibilities yeah so the nice thing about the interface is you can also add sound effects that are likely to have been present in uh, medieval York at the time. So, for example, we know there were pigs in the streets and, you know, it's likely that they made sounds as they <laughs> do now. <laughs> I think that's a fair assumption. Yeah. So, yeah. of course, I didn't record medieval pigs, but I did record modern pigs <laughs> and people can add them to the soundscape and start thinking about that sonic experience. But I think that transparency about what the limits of the research is and the possibilities. I think that's actually really important. Yeah, that's that's a, a, a very cool um, setting to have. And I, I've checked it out beforehand and we will put it in the description. And it's um, I also really liked, like this aspect that you have this possibility and you can like yeah. build your own soundscape and it's all like 
it, it probably sounded something like this, but yeah, you never know. And yeah. also depending on the day and depending on how they set it up that day. Absolutely, and yeah. yeah. If the pigs yeah. were there or not, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I really like that approach. That's, that's a Thank very you. interesting very interesting uh, thing to have. I've played around with it probably for an hour or something. So, uh, <laughs> oh, that's good to know. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, was really fun, so I recommend it. Um, yeah, I'm touching on the point of uh, going out and recording pigs. Um, what I always like to ask my guests is, uh, why did you record your first sound ever and, and what was it? Oh, goodness. You know, I've been thinking about this question and I think... It's, um, it was when I was doing my master's in um, post-production with sound design at York. Um, I think our first recording task was to do some um, kind of spot recordings. And for some reason, we recorded kind of very specific cars passing by. And I believe we used a shotgun mic. I don't know why we didn't do a stereo recording. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, 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 I can't remember really the logic there, um, but uh, it's, it's worth noting that um, when I did my master's, I didn't actually have a background in sound recording or editing or mixing or sound technology uh, at all. Mm. So everything was very new to me. My undergraduate was um, a degree in arts with specialization in music. So my initial background is more similar to musicology. So the study of music throughout history, but also the study of music from different disciplinary angles, including sociology, psychology, anthropology. Um, so this was, I, this was very new to me. So I'm not really sure I actually understood what I was doing when I did that recording. And I did do it with someone else that explained to me <laughs> things like phantom power and levels, because I don't think I had understood that in the yeah. lecture. Um, but, you know, as you know, a lot of recording is experimenting and, 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 and not being afraid of equipment. And I, I do remember being quite intimidated because everybody else in my class came from a more typical background for that sort of MA. So they had done audio engineering undergraduates. They had done sound for, for film and TV or, or film and TV as an undergraduate. Well, well, my background was so different to everybody else's. It was a really uphill uh, learning uh, learning curve really to to catch up. Yeah, I can imagine. But as you said, yeah, that's that's it's a lot of about experimenting, and uh, yeah, there's no bad recording. It's just maybe not fitting for the current situation. But you can always use a recording, no matter what <laughs> it is, and even if you just use it to make something else. Yeah, um, yeah. You mentioned um, also your background a bit in in music and uh, historical music instruments and, and stuff like that so um, what would interest me is if you watch like movies and series and you do you recognize those errors like um, yeah they didn't have this kind of guitar back then or this shouldn't sound like that um, do you have this like this nagging feeling in your head like ah they, they got it wrong that this time <laughs> No, no, not really. Um, I don't. I don't specialize in musical instruments, so I wouldn't probably many times. I wouldn't even notice. I also my interest has always been in the medieval period, so it's quite a specialized field in its own way. Mm. So I used to play when I was an undergraduate student. I got very much into medieval music, so I used to play in a medieval music ensemble. You know, with the costumes and everything. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, so I played um, the medieval gothic harp. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's quite it's quite niche, really. Um, so I guess if there was something very unusual in a medieval setting, I might notice it. But 
I'd say that if you're thinking about that, probably means the film is not very engaging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. I mean, I, I just asked that because um, recently I, I uh, had this uh, read this interesting article about um, like bird watchers getting really annoyed that there's this certain call that it's in in all the films. It's like a, a certain type of bird, and all the bird watchers know that they are. Um, most of the time it's not the right country or not the right time of day <laughs> or not the right setting. And everyone uses that because it's that like this ominous sound that everyone uses for yeah, making something mysterious. And um, yeah, it was, was an interesting long article about that oh, people wow, are get, really get really upset about that because it's like, uh, it's, it's not fitting and uh, it brings them out of the experience. So. Oh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I will also link that in the description and send it to you. Oh, it's, that's really it's... interesting. I sometimes do have noticed that a lot of people use this this stalk environment effects. And sometimes I have found myself recognizing <laughs> the, the recording. Saying, I have heard that somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the, the Wilhelm Tell scream. I think um, even people without audio experience know by now. But um, yeah, we have all those those little things where we like, ah, I've heard that before a, a couple of times. This was this like generic library. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's that's also why why I'd really like to go out for for yeah. every project and record yeah. my own stuff, even if I have something in the library. Only I think for stuff that I can can do myself. But everything else, yeah. at least I try to add something to it to make it stand out a bit. Because yeah, yeah. this is <laughs> this is really annoying me as well. Um, yeah, it just makes I it unique, that. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like this time period and this like you do it this time for this project and you have your unique spin at that time yeah. on it. Um, so um, yeah, I think that's that's really important. Other other arts do this as, as well. I mean. Uh, for example, uh, designers um, have their influences that also change over time. So you can really yeah. see in their in their journey that also their designs change because of the yeah the time they made it. And yeah, um, that also brings me to my my next question, which really interests me. Um, what inspired you to specialize in the uh, study of gender equality in the audio field? I, I I don't study gender equality in audio though. I uh, I have campaigned for gender equality in the audio field, ah, okay. but it's not my my research field. I mean, other people do do research this, and I, I have supervised projects that have had um, this topic in mind. But most of the work I've done in the field is is more raising awareness about problems of gender uh, equality in the audio world and trying to see how we could move forward. Um, so some of the things I tend to look into is representation at audio events. So who gets to mm -hmm. speak? What in what context are they speaking actually matter? And especially in relation to, to things that are invitations. So for example, the, the typical academic conferences where we have keynotes. I mean, who are the keynotes? And uh what are the problems of people never seeing themselves represented in mm. uh, in prominent figures? The same things, uh, there's been quite, you probably have heard about this, people that online bring attention to to what are called manuals, so panels that have all men. And I think this is very important because you still see quite a lot of it. I go to events and, you know, there, there, there's five um, men on stage talking about their audio experiences and uh, it sends a very strong message of what the, they feel the, the field is. And, you know, it doesn't make them evil or, you know, yeah. uh, or, or anything. But I think we all have a responsibility that if we find ourselves in events or organizing them or being part of events, that don't take an equal approach in, in all sorts of diversity and equality, not just gender. Uh, I think it's important to just say something to the organizers, raise awareness and push people to think a little bit 
more carefully as to why do they invite the people that they invite? Because there's sometimes we just invite people that we know, don't we? Yeah, I think it happens yeah. to everyone. You say, well, I know that person. I've heard them speak. They're really good. And you don't stop to think, oh, actually, you know, what about people that are underrepresented? They also have great things to do and great work. Just because one doesn't know them doesn't mean they don't, uh, you know, they don't do excellent work and their work should be amplified. So, yeah, my work is mostly about awareness and, uh, and just making sure when I teach as well, if there's any terminology that people are using, students are using, that is uh, things like sound guy or things like that. I do, I do very gently correct them and I try to create a sense where we're having, you know, we're not stopping the whole class to have a conversation about that, but there is, there is, uh, you know, there's a pointing out of, you know what, you know, it's better not to use this term because of this. And then we just move on. Yeah. And the more people hear students hear their lectures using more inclusive language, the more they're going to incorporate them to their language uh, rather than using outdated terms. So I think that's really important as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, in my early career, I started as a programmer. And um, for me, it always was in my teens. It was like, okay, programmers are males because <laughs> that's that's the only thing I see. And um, I just realized with time that probably it was that way because the representation wasn't there. I couldn't like hear any talks from uh, female programmers or from IT specialists. So um, fortunately, that changed in, in the last years. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to also like be aware of that. And um, yeah, I'll... By the way, I also like to, to use the term audio humans because we are all humans. Oh, that's um, nice. <laughs> you beautiful audio humans. Um, yes, that's, I mean, uh, this this is, I think it's, it's also sometimes a problem trying to get people to understand that it's, they don't mean ill when they say, yeah. hey guys. Yeah. And absolutely. they're like, I, I thought it was like, um, yeah, gender neutral, but it, it's yeah. not really. I mean, it's used that way, but it's also... Yeah, framing everything in a way where it's like, yeah, this is like the main thing. And um, yeah, and, and I think, as you say, you know, it's it's not about saying, oh, I can't believe you said that, but saying, oh, you know what, you know, you might want to consider using another phrase. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I think, you know, when, when people start incorporating it when they're quite early in their career, it's actually easier. And I've always, you know, I've always tried when people have asked me questions, I have always tried to kind of explain things clearly and never you know shut down any question or anything because yeah. we want we want people to to get on board diversity and, and equality and we always have i mean i'm constantly questioning myself um and i have learned from other people you know how how our terminology kind of can in, can impact different people and how we we you know we always can i think we can always improve ourselves i guess <laughs> absolutely absolutely i think it's it's true for for every wake of life i mean yeah. for every thing you have um that's that's like the thing that we as humans probably have inherent that we constantly are learning and it's uh, there's no end. Um, and I might I might steal audio humans. <laughs> yeah, of course, <laughs> I, I I love it. Humans is absolutely inclusive. Um, not not for aliens yet, but I not think, for the pigs yeah. in my project then. Yeah, but they are not audio humans, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> they are the actors. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Yeah, so what I also saw on your website was that you did sound design for the VR experience Monoliths. Yeah. And uh, I would re really like to lo uh, know what, what your role was there and uh, what the challenges were that are yeah, like unique to VR sound design. Because, yeah, as we all know, VR is uh, very dynamic, so you can move <laughs> your head around. So stereo uh, recordings yeah. are not really a thing, no. probably. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, um, yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, it was a great experience, actually. This uh, was a VR piece for uh, the theatre uh, company Pilot Theatre, based in York. And it was my first VR experience. And um, I, I, I should know, you should know that ironically, I don't actually use VR very much because a lot <laughs> of experiences make me a bit dizzy. Mm. Uh, this one, um, and it was quite funny because when we started the project, that's, that's what, I, what I told the team. <laughs> I said, if, you, if, if it passes the test of my experience, uh, you know, it's going to go great. And I can, I can confirm um, it is very, very well designed so, so I, can, I can experience it with no problems whatsoever. Um, but yeah, so Monolith is um, three poems by three women and they're on their connection to the north and each poem is linked to a different part of the north of england and one of them is linked to uh, the moors another one is linked to kind of the seaside uh, more specifically scarborough and another one is more uh, related to city experiences uh, for which we focused on a bradford so my job was actually providing the sound context for the experience mm. we decided very early on um, as we were talking before about that uniqueness we didn't want to use a library we wanted to have a recording that was created specifically for that project to represent each of the sites uh, and for that exactly because of what you were saying we need that kind of the we, we really need kind of 3d audio stereo doesn't really suit the vr environment too well so i use um the sennheiser Amvio uh, microphone to do the recordings. The good thing about that microphone, it was my first time I used it more widely. That means like for an actual project rather than just tests. And I chose it because it's really portable. Mm. And for example, when I did the more recordings, there is a car park, but to get to a quiet spot, you have about 30 minute walk. And you, you know what it's like to walk around <laughs> carrying all equipment. And I did have Absolutely. someone, <laughs> did have someone helping me carry some of it, but it does get quite exhausting. So we had to look into portability, actually. In things like the seaside and the city, that's not much of a problem because you can park quite nearby and you're, you're okay. So I did recordings from each of the sites and it was, it was really fascinating to see how different space was a slightly different recording strategy and the Moore recording was very interesting to me because the thing about the Moors is that they're quiet so mm. you're trying to record you're trying to capture that sense of tranquility um, but a lot of that sense of tranquility is because there's not many sounds <laughs> um, yeah. and as, as, I'm sure you'll sympathize it's very difficult to record something that's very quiet so um, the first thing with that is just I had to, I had to do the recording twice really because the first time it didn't work out very well there was too many people in the area um, so as this a little bit as we were talking about with impulse responses is uh, getting to know the space and what might be the best moment for it so I think I ended up on a Saturday like at seven thirty in the morning or something of the sort mm. where there were not many pastors by and you could just hear the birds the winds. Um, there was Highland cows as well. It seems like I'm obsessed with recording cows. Um, uh, cows and pigs, sorry, animals in general. And, you know, they, they were the loudest thing in the environment, really. And they just made sounds uh, every now and, uh, and then. 
And yeah, it was about sitting there for as long as possible and knowing that even if it was going to be a three minute edit, it was better to have 30 minutes or so to then choose mm. from it. But definitely, you know, noise removal was um, was was something that I had to do anyway, because I had to push the, the preamps quite high to be able to get any levels whatsoever that I could work uh, I could work with. Um, and of course, you know, like apparently people on Saturday mornings um, shoot clay pigeons uh, in the middle of the country. I mean, I didn't know people even did that. I'm like, I don't know why you would do that. But um, I I guess I learned that as well while I was there. (laughs) Awesome. So you got a nice recording of shooting clay pigeons. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Maybe you can use it for something else. Yes. Oh yeah, but I, yeah, I can I can uh, share the pain of uh, having something that's really serene, and you're like, oh, this yeah. is a nice quiet place, and you try to record it, and you say, how do I record the quiet? <laughs> I mean, it's essentially more or less just the room tone, but yeah, yeah, as you said, you pick then out the the little things that come from time to time, yeah. like like the animals, um, birds yeah. is also always fun thing, and um, what I really like is is those uh, quiet places with a, a small brook um, or even yeah. like a river that's really slow moving because. That that has like this quietness, but it's also not quiet. So, but yeah, I can, yeah, that's it's really hard to do that. Yeah. And there was a really nice moment in one of the recordings um, that you know only I know what it is because if you listen to it, you you would not know what's happening. But um, there's a little pond, and this Highland cows uh, seem to like to go to kind of refresh themselves and their feet into the water. So there's a moment in the recording that you can actually hear. Uh, the cow going into the water and then coming out. And it's a really beautiful moment. But when I talked to the producer and I explained what it was, I did tell her, look, I'm going to edit that out because it's not going to make any sense to anyone in the VR experience. <laughs> Only yeah. I know that's the cow. Yeah, you would have modeled, have to model the cow and make the animation. <laughs> kind of the, the interesting thing is that with the how we worked with VR, um, actually, we, we added a cow to... <laughs> We added that the VR, the, the visuals and the implementation was done by a one-to-one development trust. And actually we did add, uh, they added a cow to their visuals because I, I, I said, I really want my cow sound <laughs> in the edit. I really, you know, it sounds lovely. It gives a, a lovely texture and a moment of really quiet with, with a natu- another natural sound coming mm-hmm. through. Uh, so we all agreed, you know, the cow was there to stay. Um, so, so yes, there was there was a lot of conversations about adding um, the visuals, um, adding the cow to the visuals. So I'm pleased to to uh, to tell you that there is a cow in the in the VR experience, both sonically and visually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very great. It's, it's always good if you can inform uh, some design decisions so it's, <laughs> with sound as well. And what I also read on your website, what really interests me is um, this project uh, that was called Enhancing Audio Description, mm-hmm. um, number two, but I think it's number <laughs> one as well. But um, yeah, would like to hear more about that. Um, what exactly is it and, and how does it impact um, visually impaired audiences? Yes, of course. So a big part of the work I do on sound is uh, is work on sound design for accessibility and more specifically I work on uh, accessibility to film and television for visually impaired audiences and Enhancing Audio Description is a project that is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the UK and it's based at the University of York and it explores alternatives to audio description to film and television. So audio description is that third person commentary that is added 
to a film or TV production explaining generally the visual layer of the production, but sometimes mm -hmm. also some elements that are, are sound elements. And it is there to make, make it accessible uh, to visually impaired people. It is a process that sits outside the creative and technical workflows of film and television production. And it means that once a production is uh, finished, it gets sent to an audio description company uh, to provide audio description. And what in the Enhancing Audio Description project does is investigate alternatives. So our work is on a new paradigm for accessibility, one that challenges that over-reliance on the voice, on words, on explanations as the only way for accessibility. And we instead combine voice with sound effects and audio mm. spatialization to provide accessible experiences. And what we do is we actually work with productions. So our methods are not accessibility methods that are tagged at the end of a production just to comply as many people think about accessibility, sadly. Mm. We actually work with it with the filmmakers, with the television makers. And our methods really are a combination of three things. Uh, one of them is sound effects, another is uh, binaural audio, and another is a first-person description. So I'll just take you through each of them just so that it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, yeah. So by sound effects, I mean uh, adding sound effects or rebalancing the levels of sound effects to provide information for visually impaired audiences. So just to give you an example, a few years ago we worked on a short film that towards uh, the end of the film has a really beautiful scene in which the main character is running really dramatically towards the shore. She's being chased by her mother and her daughter. And in the original film, we only have the music score. Of course, we have the visuals, beautiful mm -hmm. cinematography, and we have the music score. Of course, when we tested this scene with visually impaired people, visually impaired people said they weren't sure what was happening because there was no sound effects. There was nothing to tell you what was going on. Yeah. Uh, and as you know, music can mean different things to different people. Of course, yeah. So the first thing that we did is we brought back the sound effects. So in our version, we can hear the characters running along the, uh, the, uh, the shore. And we can also hear aspects of ambience. So we can hear the seagulls, we can hear the waves, we can hear the winds, mm. and we can hear her breathing. And that is really important because when you're not seeing the screen, um, breathing can, for example, tell you a, someone is still there, mm -hmm. but also it can give you a lot of emotional information. So that is an example of how we use sound effects. In terms of binaural audio, how does this connect to accessibility? Well, it allows us to uh, provide information on where people are and where things are. So um, as uh, most people listening or many people listening will know, in film and television, we pan, conventionally, we pan dialogue to the centre. And this comes from a belief that there needs to be a really strong tie to the visuals. Mm -hmm. However, this is not very useful for accessibility because it doesn't tell people, everything's coming from the same place, so it doesn't yeah. tell people <laughs> where characters are. And this can be quite confusing. And it can be really confusing if the voices sound similar. So what we do is we break the conventions. We actually pan the dialogue and we pan the dialogue to match the position of the character screen. on screen. It helps us set the scene, but we also have found that it's really effective to differentiate voices more clearly. 
but also by panning sound effects uh, more effectively. You can set the scene, you can tell people, you know, there's a fireplace crackling at the front of the room, mm. there is a door opening on the right surround, there is someone pouring a drink on the left surround, etc. So you don't need to describe those things with words because they are sonically already there. So this is another part of what we do. The third thing that we do is look into um, short first-person descriptions, uh, kind of a little bit like inner monologues, to help clarify things that we believe are not really possible to do effectively with sound effects and spatial audio. So, for example, it could be that a colour is particularly meaningful or something has happened that is not really what would you ex you would expect, so you want to provide um, context to that. And these are um, by the main character or uh, we're exploring whether sometimes you, you, you would like to change first person throughout a production. Mm. And these three things combined is what we call enhanced audio description or EAD. And again, they're designed to um, be incorporated to the production of a film or a TV and hopefully become in the future as important as other, other parts of the design process. That's very interesting. Yeah, so it's almost like you're you're making the movie into like an uh, audio drama or like an audio story. Um, um, yes and somewhat, no. Right? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I mean this is something that we get asked quite a lot. We always work with what is already there, which means we, we sometimes have in the past been told, "Oh, this sounds like a radio drama," which is quite interesting to us because we don't actually change what the film sounds like uh, in any way that would compromise the style of the design. But generally, I think that people um, come to that conclusion because it is so integrated that accessibility... Uh, we just finished working on a film that if I played it to you, you wouldn't be able to, set, to tell what is accessibility and what is in the original film. It is quite okay. impossible to tell and that's of course that's what we consider a sign of success when something is so integrated that it is really seamless um, and again moving away from that third person that comes in gives you an explanation goes away comes in again um, and I think because it's so integrated some people kind of think about it in relation to radio drama and other audio only formats but um, we, we still wanted to film I feel like someone is having, a, you know, a cinematic experience or a television experience. Yeah, like something in between. Then that's, that's yes. very interesting. Yeah, that's that's also uh, that was also my thought. I mean, I haven't listened to a lot of audio dramas. The the only thing I can like instantly recall because it was very very impressive to me um, was uh, Homecoming. I don't know if you've heard of that, but no, I, I will also link that. It it was like a, a bigger production. And it essentially also used a lot of like panning and also like okay. low quality sounds when someone was on the phone. So you could actually hear yeah. it was like you had this phone pressed on your ear. <laughs> it was very intense um, and like or a loud bubbling um, water tank in, in, in the room or something like that. So you could really feel yeah. the room and it was yeah not clean at all, but very, very rough and, and, and real. Yeah. And that impressed me a lot. And um, yeah, and I also that, that is something that. Personally, I also don't like in a lot of movies where the dialogue is very centered yeah. most of the time. Um, 
only maybe for some effect shots or something yeah. whenever a character flies somewhere. But um, yeah, that's something that always irks me, and I hope I hope this <laughs> this gets adopted more often. And it's also yeah. it's also great that it's also then making it more accessible. Yeah, yeah I mean we've we've also done um, evaluation sessions in the past, and because because a lot of filmmakers have this fear that this you know panning the dialogue is not going to be accepted by audiences, mm. but we have run tests with a mixed visually impaired and sighted audiences and sighted audiences were fine with the pan dialogue they didn't really mind yeah. they actually many people said they liked it so i i've often wondered how much is kind of a preconception of what audiences will accept and not accept rather than a reality of what people uh, are likely to feel. I mean, there's some issues with pan and dialogue in relation to noise and whether if something has noise, then you're just panning the noise of course, yeah. and just making it more obvious. So there's there some challenges, but definitely, as you say, a lot of opportunities, I think a lot of sighted audiences feel that pan, um, centered dialogue is, is, as you say, is, is an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And um, connecting on that, on that whole issue, um, how do you see the future of sound design and accessibility um, evolving in the field of less linear mediums like video games or interactive mm. media? I think uh, th there's, there's a slight gain or gradual <laughs> gain of momentum of this idea of accessibility as, as an integrated uh, method rather than this add-on. But I do feel that there's a lot of work to be done in how in people actually taking accessibility seriously. I think many um, kind of interactive media designers or game designers are still not at the point where they're even thinking about disability and accessibility, uh, or at least that's the impression I, I get is, is kind of not at the stage where I get the impression that people are sitting down to design their experiences already thinking about accessibility. And if you want to integrate it, that's the only way of doing it. You have to think yeah. about it the earlier, the better. I think I, I would personally like to see more integration of the topic in education. I think that's the real problem. I think professionals are coming from educations in universities or, or other places in which Accessibility is, if, is not even included in filmmaking degrees or um, video gaming related degrees or interactive media, etc. And what happens is that that reinforces this notion that it doesn't matter, that it is something that's not the problem of designers. Whereas if we started teaching students that actually, no, you know, accessibility is just as important as, you know, the visual effects and the programming and this and that. I think they would go then to become professionals that have that notion of um, integrated access and that want to make their experiences accessible. So I think the educational sector has a lot of work that they could be doing and they should be doing to, um, to stop reproducing these ways of working that end up in inaccessible experiences and instead start training generations of professionals that truly engage with uh, equality, diversity and access. Yeah, that's that's something where I can totally agree, because if you have that already that mindset, then, yeah. then it in, in influences your decisions. Um, I just remember that the first time I really thought about accessibility in, in something in some projects was um, during my apprenticeship when I learned programming and we had this uh, program where we had 
this uh, traffic light signal where it's like, ah, if it's red, it's like uh, you have to do something. If it's yellow, it's <laughs> fine and stuff like that. And we presented it to the bosses. And then one of the bosses said, yeah, that's fine, but uh, I actually can't see color. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. well, that doesn't help at all. And then we had this whole talk about what kind of problems he had in, in different kind of uh, situations. And I was like, yeah, okay, the traffic light only works if the whole traffic light is there because he can see which one of the lights yeah. is on. So the color doesn't matter. And um, yeah, that, that was something where I'm like, where I was really stumped with, oh, I had thought about that at all. And I didn't know that because there was no, like, it's not, not like you talk about your disability every day. And especially back in the day, it was people usually um, were very close with that because... Okay. They yeah, were afraid probably of like not getting a job or anything. Um, fortunately, that that changed, and, and especially in Germany, that's uh, I think it's it's in a in a good spot already. Yeah. But it's also room for improvement. But yeah, this accessibility um, that is something that I that I've thought about a lot, um, and I came to the conclusion that it would be very interesting to have some kind of games that, for example, worked for visually impaired and not visually impaired people yeah. alike. I can. Yeah. Imagine something like VR being great for that because you can really go with the sound and with, with like distance attenuation and can just trust your senses, uh, so to say. Yeah. Um, that could be interesting, but yeah, I've I've not seen anything interesting yet in that regard. Yeah. So yeah, so if any one of my listeners has something, please <laughs> send it my way so I can signal boost it. Um, yeah, so yeah, we've been talking almost an hour now, so I'm... <laughs> all out of questions so there is only one thing left so uh, do you want to shout out anything any project any person free for you to shout anything yeah so there's a few people really and it's not a fear that you're going to forget someone <laughs> of course in the field of acoustical heritage i would definitely um highlight the work of two um great colleagues of mine and, and friends of mine uh one is dr uh lydia alvarez morales um who uh, led a project on cathedral acoustics in the UK and is a wonderful uh, researcher and expert in the study of uh, cathedrals around uh, around Europe, really. And also Dr. Kobe van Tonder has uh, done a lot of work on a project called Acoustic Atlas. And this uh, project, you should definitely check it out online. You can actually go to different sites and record yourselves on those sites so you can speak into all sorts of buildings and natural spaces and then also download your own recording for creative purposes if you'd like and um, she has also uh, released an album based on those on composers using those spaces creatively quite recently and that's freely available online so definitely check uh, out Covey's uh, work and both those projects were funded by the European Commission uh, but also, um, I, you know, I've been really lucky throughout the years of have, having great research mentorship in um, my colleague, Professor Damien Murphy. And again, he's done a lot of work uh, on acoustical heritage. Um, but also in terms of our enhanced audio description uh, work, we, uh, you know, I'm really lucky to work with the best of teams. My, uh, the co-investigator of the project is Professor Gavin Carney, but we also work with postdoctoral researchers, Dr. Christian Hofstadter and Dr. Michael McLaughlin. And we have an amazing uh, project officer uh, that is Shaima Alwan. And, oh goodness, there's so many people, but the last <laughs> one uh, just to highlight as well, if you're interested in accessibility, is at uh, York, we're hosting a wonderful, a wonderful visiting fellow called um, Dr. Monica Savrocca, and she's working, for example, on accessibility um, 
uh, for uh, visually impaired children, which is a very specific, uh, very interesting uh, field. And I do also have uh, the joy to uh, work with a number of wonderful uh, doctoral researchers as well. But I think that's that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we will put all those things in the description as well. Because, yeah, um, that's yeah. fine. Okay, so again, uh, thank you for taking the time. It was very interesting no to worries. learn about those new uh, audio areas I had no idea about. Uh, and I will certainly go deeper into a rabbit hole with those probably. <laughs>